Please open your Bible, if you have one, to John 3, or turn on your phone, or however you, uh, whatever you make use of. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text for this morning's message on the back of the bulletin. And this morning, we will conclude the third chapter of John. Our text this morning, in many ways, is the culmination of chapter 3, the capstone of it. Um, my understanding is that John, the gospel writer here, comments on what John the Baptist and even what Jesus has previously said. He interacts with what's come before and brings it to a fitting crescendo and climax, emphasizing the supremacy and the exclusivity or the uniqueness of Christ. Christ is supreme and Christ is the only one in that category, not one of many, but unique exclusive. I'd like to begin by reading John three thirty-one to 36. We'll have a word of prayer and we will begin. <clears throat> he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who came, comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Lord God, we would behold the glory of your Son. We would see him rightly and clearly. But we know that such seeing demands a response from us, that we might worship, we might humble ourselves, that we might entrust ourselves to him. And so, Lord, grant us faith, increase our faith, uh, that we might become more amazed at your Son who came and died for us, that we might recommit ourselves to trusting him, to obeying him, to following him. We might be those who see eternal life. We might rejoice in the glorious truth that your wrath no longer abides on us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I'll remind you of the structure. I think that even though um, the encounter with Nicodemus, which consumed most of chapter 3, ends clearly at verse 21, because 22 starts after this, it's clear from what follows that the, the discussion and the, the announcement of John the Baptist is interacting with. John's put them here to show their interaction. J John the Baptist is confirming what Jesus has said, and now I believe John the Gospel writer is confirming and tying these things together. It is, of course, possible that verses 31 to 36 are continued speech to John the Baptist. Some of your Bibles may have that heading. I, I can't disprove that. It does seem to be most likely, given the, the flow of the language, the terminology used, and the way it intersects with what's come before, that this is John the Gospel writers. It's not a huge point, but that's where I'm coming from. I, I think that's the best understanding, that after John the Baptist's bold declaration that he must increase and I must decrease, John the Gospel writer has a few things to say in tying all this together. And what the Gospel writer is doing, I believe, is emphasizing, bringing to a point, Christ is supreme over all, without any challengers, without any close second. And that consequently, how we respond to him is of critical importance. Let's look at this in five points. The supremacy and exclusivity of Christ. Point number one, as the one who has come from above, Jesus is supreme over everyone and everything on earth. He writes in verse 31, he who comes from heaven, he who comes from above, I'm sorry, is above all. He who is of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven 
is above all. You see the repetition, the emphasis, and the contrast. There is the one who is from above, and he is above all. And then we see what characterizes the one who is of the earth. And then we get the repetition. The one who comes from heaven is above all. The interposing of heaven makes it clear that saying Jesus is from above is to say Jesus is from heaven. But it's significant that John uses that word above. It's the same word. This is one of the interplays of text of Jesus in John 3, 3. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I tell you, you must be born again, it's the same word. It can be translated from above, or again, some of your Bibles may even have footnotes, born from above. The same source of the new birth, in other words, that realm where the new birth comes from, God's Holy Spirit, that is where Jesus comes from. That's, that's the connecting thought, which we're then told at the end of the verse is, in fact, heaven. Jesus is from a qualitatively different location. And that's really, I think, the emphasis here, that his authority and greatness is from above. It's from a different location. Jesus will tell Pilate when he is being questioned by him in chapter 19 of John's gospel, this same bifurcation of sources of um, authority. Turn to chapter 19, where the same word is used We'll get there in a couple of years. We'll see. Uh, John 19, in verse 11. Well, let's go back to 10 so we can see the question. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Same word. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus is saying, you'd have no authority if heaven did not give you this authority. So Jesus' greatness is not an earthly greatness. It doesn't derive from this world. It derives from being from a different world. That's the argument. John is trying to make the, the point that Jesus is qualitatively greater. He is of a different class um, we, can, we can talk about grading the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus even says John the Baptist is the greatest, right? So we can, we can evaluate them. And I'm not sure how the minor prophets feel about being labeled minor, but, you know, fair enough. You can have a graduated scale, right? And so we can say John the Baptist is greater. We can discuss whether Elijah or Elisha had the greater anointing. That, that's all fair. Jesus is on a whole different tier, whole different category whole different sphere. That, that's the point. When he talks about whoever is from the earth speaks in an earthly way, he, he's not talking about evil people as evil people. If, if he talked about the world, then we might be able to tie in his previous discussion about the darkness loving the light and all that. This is just the distinctions. People from worldlings, people from this world, and the person from heaven. That's the contrast. Most immediately then, the contrast could be John the Baptist himself. I mean, who else most recently in our text is speaking, bearing witness? And so even John the Baptist's high words of praise for Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. He was before me. He is the bridegroom. It's of a different class and category. He's speaking from the world. We'll see the, the real distinction in, in the next point. In the next point. But here... Point B, all earthly witness is qualitatively inferior. It's not enough to say Jesus is the greatest. If by that you might think he's a little greater than John the Baptist and John the Baptist is a little greater than Elijah or Elisha. No, no, Jesus is, he's in a different tier in class. We we would say he's, he's God, he's divine. But here, the contrast is Jesus stands unique apart from all others because he alone is from heaven. And this, of course, is echoing the same point Jesus made to Nicodemus. This is tying together themes seen previously in the gospel. Turn, turn back to 3, um, verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's where Jesus tells Nicodemus, I and I alone am in the category of having come from heaven. There's no competition. 
There's not multiple claimants for this title. So Jesus to Nicodemus is expressing his qualifications, his right to uniquely and authoritatively speak divine truth. John the Gospel, I believe, is making that same point here. He's making that contrast. We've seen the repeated emphasis that John the Baptist is not the Christ. We've seen John the Gospel make that point. We've seen him show us John the Baptist himself making that point repeatedly. And so possibly even here, as great as John was, the greatest man born of woman is in the, of the earth, speaking of the earth category, along with all others, all the other prophets, Moses, David, Abraham, Daniel, whoever. And then in this category, all by himself, uniquely, is the one who came from heaven, the one from above, who is above all. That, that's, that's the point. And in one sense, there's just one big main point John's making here. He'll make it different ways, but the absolute supremacy and exclusivity. He is supreme, and he alone is supreme. He alone is from above. There, there are no other people from above. There's, there's Jesus, and all others are in a different class. They're of the world. They speak in a worldly way. That's, that is the point. As the one who comes from above, Jesus is supreme over everyone and everything on earth brings us then to point number two as the one who has come from heaven jesus gives experiential witness to divine truth as the one who has come from heaven jesus gives experiential witness to divine truth one of the reasons why jesus testimony and witness is of a different class and sort than even john the baptist It's because Jesus, as he has already told Nicodemus, speaks to what he has seen, speaks to what he has heard. John the Baptist can't make claims like that. Look look back again. We saw that in verse 11 of chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. That's the same point being made here. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. That's amazing. And and the the linking is back to where he's from. Because Jesus is from above and Jesus is from heaven, he alone can speak of heavenly things in a firsthand experiential sense. This is what I've seen. This is what I've heard. And again, it puts him in a class all by himself for bearing witness and teaching. It's, it's, It's absolutely staggering. I mean, Paul can speak about being caught up to heaven briefly, and he says it's not permitted for him to tell. He's not permitted. Human words, he's not allowed to speak. Jesus can. Jesus is from heaven, and he speaks to what he has seen and what he has heard. And again, what we're driving home is the the authority of his word. It can be trusted. We've just seen Nicodemus stutter and go, what? Wait, how can this be? He's struggling. And John would have us receive and believe what Jesus says without question, without uncertainty. Jesus is eminently qualified to speak on behalf of God. Jesus is uniquely qualified to speak divine truth. And his point is that we would receive it. We would receive it as such. He testifies here to what he has seen and heard in heaven. And I think John is laying emphasis on this. If, if Keep your finger here. Turn to 1 John. Um, this isn't the only place where John, the gospel writer, the apostle John, makes an emphasis out of the the priority of what one has seen and what one has heard. He's dealing, as best as we can tell, in in the the late first century with the early Christian heresies of the denial, not of Jesus' deity, but of his humanity. People steeped in Plato and Aristotle, it would seem, struggled with the notion that God could truly take on flesh, God could truly enter into this world. And apparently, as we're trying to read this backwards, or saying things like, well, he only appeared human. He only, he only seemed real. And John wants to hammer that point and destroy it. And he, look at how he begins his first epistle. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. You getting the emphasis? John isn't someone who received the testimony is passing on to us. John is an eyewitness. John experienced. He saw. He touched. 
makes a big deal out of that so he can insist in chapter 2, Jesus came in the flesh. Well, he's making a similar emphasis here in John chapter 3. Jesus uniquely has seen and heard the things in which he speaks. So Jesus is eminently qualified, eminently um, right for him to tell us these things. We've, we've seen Nicodemus not resist it and object, but certainly not go along, not receive what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says you don't receive our testimony because Nicodemus is having a hard time with this. John would have us not respond that way. Jesus is above all. He doesn't speak as earthlings speak, as worldlings speak. He speaks of what he has heard and seen in heaven. That's the point John's making. You see how this is tying chapter 3 up, tying it together. Now, sadly, tragically, another theme of the first opening chapters is here emphasized, that despite his qualifications, despite the rightness of his testimony, it's been rejected nearly universally. Um, This is first introduced back in chapter 1. If you turn back to chapter (coughs) 1, verses 9 through 11, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him. But the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We've just seen that in his first encounter with Jesus, Nicodemus does not believe and receive Jesus' testimony. Jesus says exactly this. 3.11, I say to you what we speak and what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? It's, It's tragic the world's rejection of Jesus was not due to him not having sufficient credentials. It wasn't due to him not being a sufficient witness. The, 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 the point of this is to put the blame and the guilt and the culpability entirely on the world. Jesus is uniquely and eminently qualified to speak for heaven. His authority, his greatness, his supremacy is without peer. He's speaking from firsthand testimony and experience and tragically the world doesn't receive his testimony now we've been told why earlier in chapter 3 it's because look at 19 to 21 this is the judgment light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Why does the world reject Christ in his testimony? It's not due to any insufficiency in his credulity, in his qualifications, in his greatness. But because they love evil things and they love the darkness. It's, it's moral. It's moral. So the eminently qualified son of God has come into this world from above condescending to speak divine. He doesn't owe us truth. Understand, it's just a grace of God that he reveals anything about himself to us. And he sends his son, and his son speaks freely and openly about heavenly things. And the world, by and large, with some notable exceptions, rejects him because they love darkness rather than the light. So point number two, as the one who has come from heaven, Jesus gives experiential witness to divine truth he testifies to what he has seen and heard in heaven sadly tragically his testimony has been rejected which brings us then to point number three Um, we see in the next two verses verses 33 and 34 i was about to say luckily but luck has nothing to do with it thankfully that categorical statement at the end of Verse 32, no one receives his testimony, does have some exceptions. And we see the exception here. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. 
For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So point number three, as the one who is limitlessly equipped by the Spirit, Jesus speaks the very words of God. And again, he's, he's taking the same main point and driving it home and bringing it to a point. This isn't a fundamentally new idea. We start with, he's from above and he's above all. His speech is categorically different than the speech of people who are from the world. And his speech, and what he testifies to, is from personal experience. And now we're getting to further why we should receive Jesus' testimony. Believe Jesus' words. As the one who is limitlessly equipped by the Spirit, Jesus speaks the very words from God. So John's reasoning flows this way. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, that God is true. That's an interesting expression, set your seal. It appears one other time in John's gospel. In John chapter 6, we read verse 27, as Jesus speaks to the, the thousands who've been fed by him and want to be fed again with food. 627, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So what's this meant by this? And it's an expression that developed from merchants who would use a signet ring and wax. They would, they'd put a seal, a mark of authentication or ownership or claimant, and then by extension it became giving your word, what you're trusting in, what you're guaranteeing, or what you're relying upon. And so in this expression, I believe here, what it means is, those who do receive Jesus' testimony receive his testimony fundamentally for this reason. This is what they're trusting in. This is the compelling reason. You have to boil it down. Why should I believe Jesus' testimony? Well, the answer is because God is true, which, which makes an assumption, doesn't it? I, you, why should I believe Jesus? Be- because God is true. It means, point one, to believe Jesus is to believe God. That's the assumed logic here. That's what he's going to defend in a moment because Jesus speaks the words of God. The assumption then is you can trust Jesus as much as you would trust God. Jesus is as reliable as the Father is reliable. Jesus is as truthful as God is truthful. That's the logic. It's a monumental claim. The one who does receive Jesus' testimony doesn't do it for any reason short of believing that he speaks the very words of God, in other words. The people who receive his testimony don't ultimately do it because Jesus is very, very nice. He is compassionate, kind, gracious, loving. In other words, those who come to receive Jesus' testimony do it because they ultimately see him as God's perfect, final, complete representative or they've come to believe in the divinity of christ that's that's the rationale here let me let me uh try to show you this in john 5 um turn over to 519 jesus said to them truly truly i say to you the son can do nothing on his own accord but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does the son does likewise pause Jesus is giving here the rationale for why he can tell Thomas later in the gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's not claiming they're the same person. He's claiming that his activity and his speech and what he does and the actions he takes perfectly image and represent the Father. And he gives the basis here. Jesus does exactly, plus or minus nothing, what he sees the Father do, and Jesus sees everything that the Father does. That's the argument. The Father has fully revealed himself to Jesus. And Jesus, in response, perfectly imitates, perfectly reflects what the Father does. (coughs) Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And in some little sense, we do the same thing. Be holy as I am holy. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And the rationale is to the degree that you and I make peace with each other. We're acting like our father who's the ultimate peacemaker. Jesus is going to go on to say when he says he does everything the father does, includes creation, final judgment, the raising of the dead. Jesus, in other words, means everything. You and I will never reflect 
everything the Father does. You won't be creating universes. But Jesus did. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things came into being through him. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He goes on explaining that. So John's gospel is going to make a a big point of the reality that Jesus perfectly represents, perfectly reveals, images the Father. And look, look, Back at chapter 1, verse 18, um, the close of the prologue. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has, my ESV says, made him known, translated. Might be a good translation. It's the word we get expository preaching from, exogeomai, to draw out, to reveal, to show the meaning, to bring it out, to exegete. So we've already been told the Son reveals, translates the Father to us. And so here, what John is telling us is for those few people who do receive him, they do it precisely because they believe God is true. The implied logic is therefore they believe that Jesus represents God, God is true. If God is true and Jesus represents God, then I can trust Jesus. That's, that's the rationale of the logic. In other words, those who receive his testimony do so because they believe Jesus is God. They believe Jesus is believing God, which is the very point Jesus makes in chapter 14, verse 9 and 10. Let me read to you. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. This is, this is a theme throughout John's gospel. So to believe Jesus is to believe God. And then we're given a reason why. For he who God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. This is all backing up that claim. Let's follow it along. For, point B, he only speaks the words of God. He only speaks the words of God. Turn over to, oh no, that's not correct, sorry. Um, There is no 1043, so. um, No, the passage we just read, Jesus speaks God's word. He speaks only what the Father would have him to speak. this This is later emphasized, and here is the same point. Jesus is not doing anything out of innovation. He's not expressing himself in his own. He is perfectly imaging the Father. He's doing exactly what he was sent to do. Every single one of his words is trustworthy. He speaks the words of God. That's another claim we have to come to believe. If we're going to be those who receive him and don't reject him, you can't receive him and simply think he's a good teacher. He's got some wise counsel to say. He can give you some meaning to your life. No, the the insistence is there are two types of people, the vast majority who reject Jesus and those who believe Jesus speaks the words of God. That's the insistence, for he only speaks the words of God. And then we're given a further ground or basis for that. How can it be that Jesus only ever speaks the words of God? For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. He gives the spirit without measure, which is to say he is fully equipped by the limitless gift of the spirit. He is fully equipped by the limitless gift of the spirit. John the Baptist has already focused on, this is another connection with what came before, God's gifting, God's gifting. If you turn back, which should be probably on the same page, Look at John in 27, John the Baptist. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And by that, he's referring to his ministry. Well, now the attention is what Jesus has been given by his father. And what Jesus has been given by his father is the spirit without limit. The Greek literally, not according to measure, limitlessly. Again, we're in another category. 
Because in the Old Testament, the spirit was given and the spirit was taken away. David saw the spirit of God come upon Saul and David saw the spirit removed. That's why David cries out, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And we know that artisans and craftsmen making the, the, uh, the, the accoutrements of the temple and of the tabernacle, the Spirit of God came upon them to help them do that. The Spirit of God came upon Jephthah. So the Spirit of God's being given, but he's given in measure for a time, with a duration, with a limitation. And even as John the Baptist was filled by the Holy Spirit from the womb, surely a large measure of the Spirit. Again, Jesus is seen to be in an entirely different category. He's in the measureless category. He's, he's fully equipped. And so, in case we're needing another reason to trust that Jesus' words are God's words, Jesus is able to speak the very words of God because he is fully, limitlessly equipped for his role and his work by the Holy Spirit. That's John's argument. This is the same basis in chapter 16 when we get there for why the believers can hope that God will give us words to speak as he'll send his spirit will bring to mind. Can you remember reading in the book of Acts, Peter stood up being filled with the spirit and said. So the notion that the spirit would equip God's people to speak his words is not a new theme. What's emphasized here is unlike any that have come before or after, Jesus has been limitlessly given the spirit, not according to measure. And again, this is further ground and warrant and reason why we can trust that Jesus' words are the very words of God. Set your seal on it. Take it to the bank. That's the type of colloquialism. Set your watch and warrant by it. That's, that's the rationale. Those who receive Jesus' testimony do it precisely because they believe God is true and they believe Jesus speaks for God because he's sent by God and been equipped by God with his spirit limitlessly so that Jesus speaks the very words of God and Jesus alone. Back to the supremacy and the exclusivity of Christ. Point four, verse 35. We're continuing on the theme of the Father's gifting to the Son. Was the limitless gift of the Spirit the only gift the Father gave to his Son? Not by a long shot. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, this might be a fair implication of verse 31, but here it's made explicit. In verse 31, we simply learn Jesus' greatness is superior to all. His authority, his, his greatness, his glory is greater than all. Here we see, as the beloved of the Father, Jesus has received universal dominion over all things. As the beloved of the Father... Jesus has received universal dominion over all things. So let's take this in two points. The Father loves the Son. And, and understand that the Son is, your blank here, uniquely loved by the Father. Uniquely loved by the Father. The Father loves his sons and daughters. He loves you and I. And yet his love for his son is of a different sort or type. I don't want to say that God has different loves, but maybe the simplest way I can say it is this. We primarily speak of, consider, rejoice in God's love for us in redemptive categories. I was your enemy and you died for me. I was straying from you like a sheep and you sought me and you came after me. And so we praise God for his patience and we praise God for his mercy and we praise God for his grace my knowledge, the Father has never shown mercy on the Son. He's never needed it. And the one time he asked the cup to pass, the answer was no. The Father has never forgiven the Son. He has never needed it. We, we praise God that in spite of who and what we are, he loves us. We're told in John's Gospel, the Father has ample reason to love the Son. Because of who Jesus is, he loves him. And so, even as God's love for us is an overflow of the Trinitarian love, understand that the Father's love for his Son, we've already been told, it's like a firstborn, special, one-of-a-kind Son. The Father has every reason to love the Son, to delight in his Son. There's no, why would you do that like we do with us? Why? Why would you set your love on me? 
there's every reason why the father would love the son. The son is entirely lovely. And so here we see the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Which is fitting for the one who is above all things. I mean, notice the flow how this perfectly lines up. You start, Jesus is greater than all. Jesus now receives all dominion and authority. The son is uniquely loved of the father. That's, of course, the rationale behind John 3, 16. God's love for us is seen in the one in whom he treasures and prizes and delights in his unique, special, one-of-a-kind son. This is the way God loved the world. He sent his son to die for us. And precisely because of the father's love of the son, we're supposed to marvel at his gift of love to us. The son is uniquely loved to the father. And an evidence of that love is, again, God giving. In John 3, 16, God's love for us is seen in him giving his son. He came into the world and died on a cross for our sins. The father's evidence of his love for his son here is giving him universal dominion. And again, turn back over to chapter 5, where this is going to be explored later. Briefly. A few minutes, briefly. Um, cha- chapter five, Jesus, Jesus' speech in chapter five is some of the deepest um, Trinitarian theology I'm aware of, as he explains his relationship with the Father, and it's it's remarkable, it's astounding. Verse twenty, the Father loves the Son. And shows him all that he himself is doing. So another here manifestation or evidence or mark of the father's love is the full self-disclosure. He, he's shown his love to us and that he's revealed much of himself to us and much of his will. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 makes it clear there are plenty of things God has not seen fit to share with us. The secret things belong to the Lord. And so there's much of God's will and God's plan that we don't know. So when difficult things happen and people come to me and I... I don't know what the Lord's doing. I know he's doing good. I know he knows what he's doing, but I can't tell you exactly what he's doing. The Father's completely revealed himself and his will to the Son. That's, that's one of the expressions of love the Father has for the Son. And the Son's expression of love to the Father is then to do exactly what he sees. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives life to whom he chooses. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Again, the same rationale. The father has chosen his son as his representative. So what you do with Jesus is what you do with God. There is no honoring of the father without honoring the son because you've got to believe and set your seal on the fact that God is true and the one who represents God truly does. So the Father has given him universal dominion, all judgment, all rule, all authority, all life-giving power is and belongs to the Christ, which is why in the book of Revelation and he shows up to claim his inheritance written on the inside of his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's been given to him by his father, and he comes to claim it. That's, that's the rationale. So if we're to build up the case being made, Jesus is qualitatively of a different sort. And, and maybe this is more of a point for Jewish readers. Because, of course, Moses is a great prophet. David is a man after God's own heart. Abraham offered up his own son. All these men are great. John the Baptist, the greatest of all men born of women. And yet Jesus is in a class and category exclusively his own of greatness. He alone is from heaven. And he alone speaks of what he's seen in heaven. He is above all. And then he comes and speaks of what he has seen and heard. And he's been limitlessly equipped by the Spirit to do that. And we learn that to receive Jesus is done by those who believe he truly represents God. In other words, there is no truly receiving his testimony without believing Jesus is speaking for God, the words of God as his representative. And now this one whom we're believing and receiving is the one who will judge the living and the dead, who's been given all dominion and all authority 
and all rule. This, is, again, is all tied up in the other prophets far in the distance when we look at Christ. That's, that's the rationale. Which brings us then to our fifth point, verse 36. This is the practical implication and application for us. If these things are true, if Jesus is greater than all, and his word is more authoritative than all, and if he's been gifted by the Spirit beyond all, and if his rule and authority is over all, then as the one sent to save the world, your response to Jesus determines your eternal fate. As the one sent to save the world, your response to Jesus determines your eternal fate. This is the only verse in John's gospel where wrath is named. The stakes couldn't be higher. This is the practical application for you and for me, which suggests this is why John penned this paragraph. We know from the end of the gospel that he wrote these things that we might believe and by believing have life in his name. So understand, John's laid out these Christological claims, the, the, the supremacy of Christ, the authority of Christ, the, the gifting of the Spirit by Christ. The, his rule and authority is then to bring us to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, not will have, possesses now. You, sitting here, can today possess eternal life. It's not just something in the future epoch but something you can possess now. That's one possibility. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And again, the present tense is emphasized. Not you will face God's wrath. You will. It's hovering over you now. That's the stakes. These are the two possibilities. All of humanity can be put in one of those two clauses. There's no third position. Either you are, either, either condition A is true of you or condition B is true of you. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. There's one possibility. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So, point A here. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, this has been repeated, but it's worth repeating. This is a, a summary of the gospel message. This one who is this great, who's from heaven, who speaks for heaven, who's limitlessly equipped by this work, he comes and he dies for our sins. And he stands in our places, our substitute. And justice that is due us falls rightly on him. And the Father crushed him. He bore the wrath of the Father for our sin. He was raised on the third day. And the gospel message over and over and over and over again in John's gospel and in other places, is believe in this one, in this Christ, who he is and what he has done. And here, the one who believes in the Son has, possesses now eternal life. That's, that's the promise. And I, and I wouldn't want to assume that that's true of everyone here, so let me repeat again. John wrote for this very purpose. Believe, put your seal on the fact that this one is trustworthy. This one speaks God's words. This Son of God is trustworthy and reliable. Determined to trust and follow Him. And have eternal life today. Whoever. And again, it's similar to John 3.16. It's back to individual. The one. Each one. It's true of everyone. There are no exceptions. Where there is a person who is believing in the Son of God, there is a person who's having eternal life. Now, let's look at the one who disobeys. The one who disobeys the Son will not see life. Now, that contrast, if your translation has that contrast, is probably striking. I think it's meant to be. What would you most naturally think is paired with the one who believes, da 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 da, da the one who disbelieves, right? That's, that's what you'd think. And the NIV I think wrongly translates it as reject, and the New King James just has not believe. I, I think the ESV, the New American Standard, and other translations um, have it correct. Let me read a quote from a, a commentator on this. Um, they're, they're trying to smooth out the incongruity. It's, it's odd. 
Um, it's odd. It's unexpected. The one who believes, the one who doesn't obey. And so I think some of the translations have tried to smooth that out. Here's what commentator uh, J. Ramsey Michaels says. Verse 36 echoes verse 18. Note that. Look back at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's pretty similar content to verse 36, right? Another one of the tie-ins of this closing paragraph of what's come before. Verse 36, he writes, echoes verse 18, except the common Johain, which is a slightly obnoxious way of saying John style or John way of expression, whoever does not believe gives way to whoever disobeys the son. Let me read that again. They're identical. They're very similar. Verse 36 echoes verse 18, except that John's previous expression, whoever does not believe gives way to whoever disobeys the son. A phrase found nowhere else in John's gospel. One of the clues that John doesn't mean simply disbelieve is the fact that he commonly has a word to not believe. That's not what he uses here. He uses a a more rare, obscure term. In doing so, he writes, he makes clear that the meaning is the same. The change of verb helps define believing as obedience or coming to the light rather than mere intellectual assent. I think that's significant, that by swapping this verb out, by giving us the unexpected not obey, he's helping inform the character of the faith he's pursuing. We've already seen in 19 to 21 that what you love, what you trust in, determines what you do. I've talked about this in the ABF, I've talked about it in many other sermons, but there's a rock-solid one-to-one connection between what you believe and what you do. I've used this example before, I'll use it again. Did Eve believe the serpent or God when she ate the fruit? Did she believe? How do you know? The text doesn't say she believed the serpent. You know what she believed because you saw what she did. The logic is clear. Who am I going to trust? Who am I going to believe? She eats the fruit. Well, clearly she believed the serpent. That's the biblical logic. The logic is you act on what you believe. Now, we live in a postmodern culture where we're used to having seven or eight contradictory ideas in our head that have no effect on our life. And John's making it clear that to believe Jesus, let me me flip it around the other way. How do you identify someone who believes Jesus? They try to obey him. And the flip here is how do you identify someone who doesn't believe Jesus? They disobey him. That's the logic. What that means then, for these two conditions to be true, is there, aren't, there is nobody in the category of being a believer of Jesus and being a disobeyer of Jesus in, in, a big, in a true sense. Otherwise, you'd have somebody who meets both conditions, somebody who both has eternal life and will not see life, which is nonsensical. Now, believers struggle with sin, but at the end of the day, one of these two conditions is true about you. And so the challenge for us to consider for a moment is what would be a truer, which one of these better describes you and me? Are you a believer in Jesus or are you a disobeyer of Jesus? If you had to pick one, if one had to summarize you, because you can't ultimately meet both of these qualifications. You can't both have eternal life and not see life. The, the logic here is that, point one here under B, saving faith Always yields, always produces obedience to Christ. Always, always, always. Because you act on what we believe. Always. When you sin, it's because in that moment, you didn't believe God. You believed something else. Your heart said, you deserve that, or you shouldn't put up with that, or you should let them know what you think. And you said, yeah, I should. And you believed a lie, and you acted on a lie, and you sinned. Which is why when you confess, and when you repent, you're, you're changing that course. I I want to stress that because John is the gospel writer who wants to emphasize faith in Christ more than any other gospel writer. And yet he's also been emphasizing the quality and the character of that faith. And I have met, sadly, many people who insist they have a faith in God, yet no fruit, no obedience, because they've completely bifurcated what they believe and some emotions they feel from the life they live. Let me insist to you, the life you live shows me, 
shows God, shows the angels who watch what you believe. Always, always, always. We, we act on our belief system. We act in our belief system. So this isn't saying a perfect obedience, but those who believe in the Son, those who've received his testimony as true are those who it can be said they are seeking, they are striving to keep, to obey his commandments. Jesus makes this point clearly in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, which means if you don't keep his commandments, I don't care how many tears you shed during the worship service, you don't love him. And Jesus says that. And God's word is true, and he speaks the words of God. We, we, it's easy. I, I, I hammer this because this is the only point in John's gospel where wrath is named. And it's worth the pause and examine ourselves. Is what we believe, if you're here this morning, I'm guessing you probably think you have some faith in Jesus. If you purely evaluated your faith by the fruit of seeking to obey Christ, has your faith rate? This, this contrast here assumes there is no middle position. There are those who believe and there are those who don't obey. And I think in the one passage in John's gospel, because the stakes, why, why make people uncomfortable and stress this? Because it's not just that people who don't believe the Son will face God's wrath. If you're here today, and you have not bowed the knee to King Jesus, if, if you have not trusted in him and entrusted yourself to him, at this very moment, God's wrath hovers over you. It remains. It abides. You're, you're moments away, potentially, from the full force of the wrath of a holy God. And so a challenging verse like this is worth reflecting on. There is free pardon. There is eternal life available to those who will believe in Jesus. But John here, as he will continue through the rest of the gospel, defining, clarifying what he means by faith, wants to make it clear. Whatever it is that you've got called faith, the way James says it, faith without works is dead. This is John's attempt at making the same point, I think. If you've got something you call faith but doesn't pr produce fruit of following and obeying Christ, if you have areas of your life that you consistently say no to King Jesus on, maybe that's the simplest way. If, if you right now sitting here have areas, holdouts, strongholds in your life, not, not areas you struggle and fight, and just that's mine and you can't have it, consider the possibility that the wrath of God abides on you and flee the wrath to come to the Son. Trust in Him. He is eminently trustworthy. Bow the knee to the one who is supreme above all and receive his word as life and law. Let's cuddle us in a word of prayer. Lord God, I pray that you would give us a faith that yields fruit, that you would um, sanctify your people, that we would escape your wrath, that we would trust in your son, that even as most of the world do not receive his testimony, we would be those that do and there bear the fruit in keeping with that. So, Lord, increase our faith. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.